0: Hey, Thank you so much, uh, Alicia and worship team, Uh, always grateful for all of our people who contribute in that way, and thank you too for singing, Uh, really, uh, you all encouraged me this morning, Uh, so thank you for that. I am excited to start a new series with you this morning, Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series, can you guess what it's called? That's right, yep, for those who are sitting here, you can see it easily for those listening online later, we are starting a new series called Moses. Moses. today, and it's going to run for five straight weeks, and um, in case you don't know who we're going to be looking at for five weeks, boom, there you go, Moses, one of the greatest men I think in the entire Bible, one of the uh, uh, only men, uh, one of the few men whom God made a personal covenant with that actually carried on beyond his lifetime and came to define a whole nation. Moses was a leader of a nation. It's incredible that we can study a man like that. And also, this is, this is incredible to me, the only man that we know of who's seen God and lived, albeit the back of God, but nonetheless... So we're looking at a man who's, uh, who's uh, been given credit for writing the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that this is part of what he penned, we believe. And so we're going to be looking at, for five weeks, an incredible leader, an incredibly um, gifted and uh, driven person who has been... Uh, given opportunities that he leveraged in incredible ways to the point where we're actually still talking about him today which is amazing. So here's my hope for the series, two hopes, all right? Number one, I hope that in looking at Moses that we can be encouraged to see the God of Moses not just Moses himself. Okay? Like I hope that in this series that we can see how God works in faithfulness behind Moses's life to shape things to create an incredible legacy for Moses. I think we all want our life to outlive our life, if I can put it that way. Like, we want the efforts of our life or the priorities of our life or the values of our life to outlive us, to carry on to the next generation and the next one, maybe the one beyond that. Moses' life is very unique because the very fact that we are still talking about him today, century upon century upon century upon century later, means that the God of Moses has preserved his legacy for a reason. And it's a story about God's faithfulness and favor and also the character of a man. And so I want us, in this series, to see the God of Moses, to be encouraged about what a life lived for this God can be like. But number two, I want to approach this study on the book of Moses, or on the the life of Moses, in a particular way. I see the life of Moses unfolding in a particular way in the scriptures, and I want to unpack it with you stage by stage. So this morning, I'm going to unpack with you the first stage of Moses' life, his youngest years, and what happens to him as a young man. Next week, I want to unpack for you what happens in what I'm going to call the building years of his life. After he's younger, and now as he's getting to be a little bit older, and some things begin to happen and change in him, lessons he learns that are different in this building years than in his earliest years. The following week, kind of in the middle, We're going to look at the pinnacle or the climax of Moses' life and kind of the, the high point and what happens when you have your greatest success in life. We're going to talk about that for Moses. The following week, the fourth week, we're going to look at life after things go well. The down of the roller coaster, not just the up. The bumps and bruises along the way that come in your life and maybe in mine after you have achieved something great. And then finally, the last week, We're going to talk about the last days of Moses' life, what it means to finish well and how you get to that point and the characteristics of him and how God has shaped him. So we're going to walk through the stages of Moses' life in that way for five weeks. We're going to use the book of Exodus primarily. We're also going to jump in toward the end in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is going to be how we're going to approach it. So here's my hope for you, okay? My hope is that if you are in one of these stages in your life right now, early years, building years, in a period of great success, or you know, things are going really well for you, or maybe you're on the heels of that, or you're nearing the end of your life. That no matter where you are, that you can see yourself in the story of Moses, and you can see God in that story. And that you can anticipate what may be coming next. If you're in the early years, you can anticipate something from the life of Moses about what might be coming next in what we might call the building years of your life see we don 't have to learn all the failures ourselves by doing them; we can actually learn them by seeing what other people do and So when we study great men like Moses, my hope is that we can learn from and reflect on how God has shaped him through each of these series of his stages of his life and learn from that okay? so that 's where we 're going in this uh, in this series together all right so to begin, I want to set a little bit of background for you and something that 's important to know, and that is um, as the, the curtain opens up on the stage of Moses' life, we believe that Moses was born around 1526 B.C. That's a little while ago. About 350 years before Moses was born, a man named Jacob moved his family to Egypt Because there was a famine in the land where he was, and in Egypt, they were in a period of great prosperity. You should know, and some of the reason I want to tell you some history here this morning is because I want you to know that the Bible is not a fairy tale. This is not about the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny. These are actually real people, real events, and real historical time and place. And so in 1526, right in in that period we believe Moses was born, And about 1856, Jacob moved his family to Egypt in the middle of what was the 12th dynasty in Egypt. In the 12th and 13th dynasties in Egypt, Egypt was in their golden years. Things were going incredibly, incredibly well for the nation of Egypt under the leadership of a man some of you may have heard of named Joseph. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, and Joseph was given authority in Egypt to manage the crops that were coming in and to see them through the famine in the land, and Egypt was able to see their way through. Now, after Joseph died, there was a problem. There was a problem of a lack of leadership, not only from the, the Israelite side, but also from the Egyptians. Because the, the dynasty in charge at this point now, the 13th dynasty faded away. And then in Egypt's history, they just will track it by dynasty. So then the, the 14th and 15th dynasties came in, and the 16th and 17th, and then the 18th dynasties where Moses kind of comes into play. So in the dynasties in between Jacob and Joseph and Moses we had a very interesting thing happening. In the first two dynasties, the 14th and 15th dynasties, things started to go downhill. And in that period, there was a group of people who were called the, um, I don't think I can pronounce it correctly, so forgive me if you know how to pronounce this, but the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, Hyksos, I don't know how you say it. it. sounds like a sauce you put on. Hey, pass the Hyksos and the ketchup and whatever. Anyway, so the Hyksos, the they, they came into power, and they were a group of Semitic Asiatic people. In other words, they had a Jewish background, but they also had Asiatic, Asiatic background as well. And what that did is they came over and they took over in the land of Egypt and because they had uh, greater engineering related to weaponry than anyone else did. So when you, when you have the best weapons, you win. It's kind of what happened. So the Hyksos took over for a couple hundred years, and because they had Semitic background, they were very amenable or open to having Jews live in the land. Like that didn't bother them because that was part of their history and their heritage. Well, over time, there's a, a king, a pharaoh named uh, um, Amthos the first of Thebes. All right? And again, you know, I'm not going to ask you this for a study question later. I'm telling you names because I want you to know this stuff happened. Not a fairy tale. Anthos of Thebes, the first, he ended up coming into power and taking over and getting rid of uh, the previous generations and previous leadership. And so moving into then the 16th and 17th dynasties, there came a kind of a renewal of Egyptian nationalism where the Egyptians... Wrestled back control. They figured out how to beat the the Hyksos, and they took back over. And with that, as you can imagine, there's kind of a groundswell of "We are Egyptians. Hear us roar!" kind of thing. Like we were subdued for a couple hundred years, but we are back on the scene, and we're going to be in charge, and we're going to be great again. Kind of thing. Like this is just what we're going to do. And so, in that, we open up the story onto Moses's life with that political background happening, and that economic background happening and that happening, that there's a groundswell of Egyptian nationalism happening right now where the nation is beginning to recover and beginning to enter another period of kind of their their golden age again into the 18th dynasty. So with that as background, the book of Exodus opens up with all of this happening. Now, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me, because we're going to jump into that story in, in Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, no problem, there's a Bible in the pew around you. Exodus is really easy to find. It's just the second book in the Bible. You open the Bible, go to Genesis, that's pretty big there, and then turn right over to Exodus. And Exodus chapter 1 is where we are going to uh, going to kick it off here, all right? Beginning at verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV. I'm also reading from the NIV 1984 version, um, we might need to, to uh, some of you who have newer versions may not, the, the language might not quite be right, but this morning I'm reading from the 1984 version. So if you wonder why it's not quite tracking if you have a 2015, that's, that's kind of why, or 2011. All right, so here we go. Uh, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. And Joseph was already in Egypt. All right, so we're setting up the history. Verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. That's a true story. It was a great period of time for them. They continued to grow even as the nation you know, withered, because of the the rain, they continued to grow. So, a new king, verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Stop it there for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Think about all that Joseph did for the nation, and think about how, in the world, someone who becomes a king of a nation would not know who Joseph was. The second in command who saved the nation of Egypt from famine, who was known to be essentially the hero of the nation of Egypt from a previous generation. How in the world do you not know who Joseph was? This is about 350 years since Joseph was here. And this sidebar, sidebar, this is free. It's all kind of free anyway, but this is free, especially free this morning. I ask the question: Whose fault is this? That this guy doesn't know about Joseph. Is it his fault? Is he just an ignorant, arrogant king? Is it Joseph's generation's fault for not leading? Maybe. Or here's another thing. Here's what I think. I think there was a failure of parenting. I think there's a failure of parenting. You've heard it said, and it's a phrase, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, right? Because the, the influence of parents to shape the hearts of children to be leaders and visionaries and to carry on with the purposes of God is profound. And somewhere along the line, the nation of Israel lost its influence and lost its impact and just went along with everything. And somewhere along the line, parents just went right along with the flow somewhere along the line, that happened. And there weren't parents saying, hey, listen, we are the people of God. This is what we do. This is how we contribute. This is how we serve. This is how we help. This is what we do. They don't have an identity at all as the people anymore. In fact, the new king is like, I don't know who Joseph was. And because he doesn't know who Joseph was, and because there is no clear purpose for the nation of Israel, he begins to be afraid of what will happen with this growing people in his land. Look what happens in verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Our best guess is there are about 2 million Israelites living here at this time. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, here's what will happen if war breaks out, they're going to join the enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So his greatest fear is that they're going to leave the country. Why is he afraid of that? Because they have overtaken the Jews and they're using them as slaves. And they're helping to build cities. They're helping to defend, build the defense systems for Egypt. And they don't want to lose their million-plus workforce that is free. Look, at, This is what happens in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them. Look at the hard language of verses 11 through 14. It's our next section. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Don't miss this. Did you see what happened there? They put slave masters over the the Israelites, over the Hebrews, to build cities, not just a, a fortress, not just a palace, not just one place, but we're building cities now, entire places, as storehouses for Pharaoh to hold massive amounts of materials and to be a fortress for a defense. I mean, we're talking massive, massive, massive engineering, construction, building. They are building these things, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, again, hard language, the more they multiplied and spread. I don't know how that works. I mean, I kind of know how it works, but I don't know how that works when you're oppressed, right? So the Egyptians came to, check out what the Egyptians are doing. They came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What a terrible picture of what 's beginning to happen, and this sets into motion a growing divide and a growing animosity between Egypt and the Hebrews between Egypt and the people of Israel this Act of the king, when the king comes in, and we believe it was one of the Amenhotep kings, or it comes in, he comes in and begins to be ruthless toward the nation of Israel, and begins to set in a growing animosity between the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt, where one one group really begins to hate the other, and the other hates the other, and there's this divide that happens. And when the king's first plan to reduce the number of Israelites doesn't work, he goes through a gruesome plan number two. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt then said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do, and they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, "Uh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So Pharaoh, who had never had a kid, said, Okay. Just kidding, that's not in there. All right, verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. That's incredible. That, that, again, we're talking about these two women today. We believe that these women were essentially managers or leaders of the midwives. There's no way in the world you have two midwives for two million people. That's, that's not going to happen. Right? But the, they were representative of the, I don't know, midwives, anonymous. I don't know what they did. Anyway, but they didn't do it. And that's incredible because can you imagine going to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the nation? He says, I want you to kill, kill them. And if, there, if he's willing to kill the babies and you go against his command, what do you think he's going to do to you? And so they come with this courage, like we fear the Lord more than we fear Pharaoh. And so here we go. So that didn't work. And Pharaoh, as far as we know, spared their lives because they had families of their own. So plan C is, plan A is we're going to work them hard so they stop producing and we can keep them under control. Plan B is tell the Hebrew midwives to kill their baby boys so that they don't grow up to, to threaten us plan C is terrible. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being living in a country that is not your home country, but having been there for generations now, centuries now, and all of a sudden having your neighbors who are Egyptians given the command by the leader of their nation, if your neighbor who's a Hebrew has a baby boy, it is your obligation to kill him. Can you imagine what that would feel like if you're, if you're young and in love and you're getting married? Trying to start a young family, a young Hebrew family, at this period of time? Imagine what you're trying to do now if you're having kids, and this, if that's the stage of life you're in where you're getting the nursery ready for a junior to arrive and you can't wait for them to come. You find out it's a baby boy, and you know that if my neighbors find out it's a boy, they're obligated to kill him. I, we, we cannot fathom this. This, this is a grotesque and uh, subhuman. I don't know what other words to use to describe this kind of command for infanticide, but that's what's happening. And the divide, the animosity between two nations deepens because one people are told the baby boys of the Hebrews are worthless. And that creates in this nation the feeling that the rulers of this nation are worthless. We have two people who begin to deeply, deeply, deeply resent and hate each other. And now, verse two—excuse me, chapter two, verse one. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant. Voila, and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him. For three months. I have no idea how you do that. I have no idea how you do that. And I have no idea how you handle the questions from your neighbors about, I guess you had a baby girl, can we see her? I guess you can hide the gender for a little while, but she hid him for three months. And then check out what happens in verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood a distance to, s- to see what would happen to him. Can you imagine being to the point as a parent where the safest thing for you to do for your child at three months old is to put him in a basket and push him down the river. Can you imagine the kind of world that it would have to be where that is the best play that you have? Because that's what Moses' mom was dealing with. It's mind-numbing. I, I cannot process that but here's little baby moses and the safest thing for him is to be shoved out into the nile on his own as a 3 month old and if you know the story you know what happens next that the basket carries on the current of the nile right on down to where the daughter of pharaoh comes down for her morning bath i suppose her name we believe is this one hot shepsut how about that for a baby name? You ever need one? There you go. Hatshepsut becomes a very famous daughter of the Pharaoh. We believe she actually later comes to power. and Very powerful, becomes a very, very powerful woman, and evidently is a very influential daughter. Hatshepsut, with her um, court, with her maidens, whatever, they come down to the river and they hear a baby crying, so they see the basket and they, they open the basket and they see this little baby. And if you've ever been a dad and you've had a kid come to you and say, hey, We found a kitten at the end of the road. You know the next question. Can I keep it? So I don't know if this is going on for Hatshepsut, but it's kind of like, Hey, Dad, I found a baby in the Nile. Look how cute he is. Can I keep him? And she keeps him. Now, if you know the story, you also know that Hatshepsut talks with Moses' sister. And Moses' sister offers Moses' mom to take care of and to wean Moses until he is uh, you know, ready. Uh, no longer for that. All right, And that is agreed upon and they agree to pay Moses' mom to take care of uh, young Moses. And then for the second time when Moses is finally wounded, for the second time, Moses' mom and dad have to say goodbye to Moses. This time they think for good. And they give Moses over to Hatshepsut and the, the pharaohs. And Moses grows up Imagine this, Moses grows up in the court where he is taught how to think like an Egyptian, eat like an Egyptian, believe like an Egyptian, and live, dress, and act like an Egyptian. And somewhere along the line, He realizes, and I don't know when, I don't know when you realize this. I don't know when your conscience grows to the point where you become aware of who you really are. But somewhere along the line, growing up in all the benefits of Pharaoh's court, somewhere along the line, Moses realizes, this isn't who I am. There's something different. And I don't know if Hatshepsut told him. I don't know how he figured this. I don't know what happened. But somewhere along the line, Moses realized, this is not who I am. And once he's older, we pick up the story at a very critical point in verse 11 of chapter 2. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. So he had an awareness, I'm going to see my people. He knew they were his people. And he watched them at their hard labor. I'm imagining, why would you do that? Why would you go out to watch them at their hard labor? I go out and I watch them at their hard labor. And then this is what he saw. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And he knew inside of him, he knew, this Egyptian leader is beating my people. And that divide, that animosity, that wasn't a national level that began... When Pharaoh said we need to reduce the number of people by putting them under hard slave labor that was deepened when he said to the midwives kill them and was deepened even further when he kind of put out a a bolo for all Hebrew baby boys to be killed at the hands of Egyptian community members. That animosity that was felt within a nation boiled up in Moses in that moment. And he had had enough. You can only take so much of oppression and injustice before something snaps in you and you're gone. And here's what Moses did. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and verse 12, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And in a moment, moment, Moses becomes a murderer and will never get that back. At his own bare hands, evidently, Moses kills another man, buries him in the sand and hopes that nobody sees him. And he goes home, probably feeling emotionally relieved like he's done something right because there's been injustice. But the next day he knows that he's been found out, verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man man said, "Uh, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And this is the first time in Moses' life where fear is introduced into the narrative. And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And from that point on, Moses' life is a constant battle to overcome the fear that came all the way back from this moment of unbridled passion in his early years of his life, where the anger, the frustration, the the deep-seated passion that he had boiled over in an unguarded moment where he felt like he wasn't accountable to anyone, looking left and right, seeing nobody, he kills a man. And so what can we say about Moses at this kind of beginning stage of his life? I want to say a couple things about Moses and then one thing about God to wrap it up. Number one, as we look at the story of Moses, I want to say this. We all have baggage, and it's helpful to unpack yours before it unpacks itself. We all have baggage, and it's helpful to unpack yours before it unpacks itself. Last week, we came back from the DR, Dominican Republic, and I brought three suitcases back with me and came back in, I think, late at night, I can't even remember, and laid some of them out in the hallway, began to start doing the 14 loads of laundry that come with that event, right? and I still had clean clothes in one of the bags, and, um, and, and I, I just left the suitcase and kind of forgot about it, and a couple days later, I'm like, hey, hey, Jen, have you seen, I think I was looking for my belt, I'm like, have you seen my, my belt? And she's like, well, it's in the suitcase that so you haven't unpacked yet. I'm like, huh. I just thought it would unpack itself. You mean I have to go go do that? And I had forgotten about that. But here's the thing. Suitcases don't unpack themselves, but ours do. The baggage that we bring from our childhood does unpack itself over time, and this is why you see people who are older all of a sudden lash out in anger, all of a sudden be unable to process things emotionally. This is why we see addictions develop. This is why we see people who can't relate in love to one another because we don't know how to do it. This is why, this is why, this is why. We all have baggage. I'm telling you that. And and, and listen to me as well. You may not believe this. If you're in your younger years, you may not believe what I'm going to tell you. But let me tell it to you. And you can decide at some point whether you want to believe it or not. But you are being influenced by people who have baggage, which means you will get some of that baggage yourself. Now, you may think that your life is awesome, that your parents are great, and that everything is wonderful, and it probably is pretty good. But I also want to tell you that even in your most awesome life, there's still baggage rolling along with you at this point in your life, and it will be helpful at some point to unpack that before something like what happened to Moses happens to you. Not that you're going to lash out and kill somebody, but that the baggage, the stuff of your early childhood, can be unpacked with somebody, which leads me to my second point, and that is this. Opening up to a few trusted advisors is just smart. It's just smart, especially in this early stage of life. Opening up to a few trusted advisors is just smart. Moses got in trouble when he was disconnected, and the text tells us that. The only reason that he acted in that moment when he did was because he felt like he was not accountable to anyone. I can look left, I can look right, and now I'm going to act. I am angry, and by the way, his cause was right, right? This is unjust, I am justified in my anger, I'm going to go out and do it. And he's disconnected from people who can actually advise and help him. I'm just telling you, connecting with people who can be a few trusted advisors is just a smart thing to do. Finding people who are a little bit older, a little bit further down the pike and laying out, you know what, here's what I want, here's what I think is happening, here's what makes me angry, here's what is an interest in my heart. Like, what do you think? I'm thinking about going to college here. I'm thinking about marrying this person. I'm thinking about investing in this. I'm thinking about this, thinking about that, I'm thinking about whatever. Like, allowing people being humble enough to say, I want you to look at my life and advise and guide me is just a wise thing to do so that we don't make decisions like Moses in the heat of the moment with the passion of our heart, knowing that we're right because we have the right cause. Opening up to a few trusted advisors is just a smart idea. Thirdly, missteps due to passion are better than no steps due to passivity. Okay? Missteps due to passion are better than no steps due to passivity. In other words, doing something is better than doing Nothing. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but is it a law of physics? Is it not a law of physics, or something that an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by some equal or something else force? Am I somewhere close to that? Do you think I could teach that somewhere? Okay, maybe not. The point is, it's always easier to keep something in motion. So, missteps due to passion are better than no steps due to passivity. Like the reality is, the reality is, what I don't want for you is I don't want you don't want for you to wait until you have everything just right. I want, you, I want you to go ahead and, and act and move and, and lead. Like This is why I'm so grateful, by the way, for patient Sunday school teachers, patient elementary teachers, people who are patient with our next generation of growing um, boys and growing girls who make dumb decisions now and out of passion yell and scream and kick and do things that are just bad, Okay? But what's underneath that? Like, it's a, it's a passion. Like, that was wrong that he took my lunch, and so I'm going to punch him. Okay, it was wrong that he took your lunch, but let's not punch, but let's take that passion and move that another way. Like, that's a misstep. But that's better than just sitting there and be like, you took my lunch, what else is he going to take? Like, no, nope, we don't want to develop that passivity, Right? Like, missteps due to passion are always better than no steps due to passivity. So, like, what I'm telling you is carry on with your passion. Like, move forward by doing something that God has wired you to do. That's what I want for you. And I'm so grateful for people who get this and understand the patience needed to develop this in the next generation. So grateful for you because it's incredible what can happen, even from the most disobedient children, Right? of which many of us were in that category, if we are honest. So grateful, grateful, grateful for that. Finally, and with this I'm going to wrap up, one thing about God. And this is a little deeper thought for us about God. Totally, we're totally able to handle this. By deeper, I mean uh, we're going to go a little further than we often do. But, but here's what I mean by this, uh, this intro. Okay, Here's this thing about God. God may feel silent temporarily, but he's never silent ultimately. God may feel silent temporarily, but he's never silent Ultimately. And what I mean by that is, is this. There are people in the story that we just read, in the, book of, in the book of Exodus. There were other Hebrew boys who were born, not named Moses. And do you know who they were? Neither do I. Because they were killed by Pharaoh's command. And do you think those parents would have prayed? Do you think those parents would have hoped that their little boy could be Moses instead of who knows who, an anonymous boy who was born and killed? Was God silent? Yeah, temporarily. But not ultimately. Like I'm just saying that the reality is there are seasons of life, and sometimes it's a long season, sometimes it's an entire lifetime, Where you're going to pray for God to deliver you, and he won't. But he's still a deliverer. You're going to pray for God to heal you, and he won't. But he's still a healer. You're going to pray for something to change drastically in your marriage, or in your finances, or in your future, and it's not going to change. But God is still faithful. Faithful. Like, there are times, there are seasons where God is silent temporarily, but he is never silent ultimately. Our view of the world in which we live in is simply limited. And this is the story of Moses. In fact, look at the end of chapter 2 with me. And with these verses, we'll wrap it up. The end of chapter 2 reads this way. Verse 23. After Moses fled from Pharaoh and went and got married in Midian... During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. After children died, after couples lost their newborn. After that, God acted. And so I just want to say, as much as we want God to act, if you have a faith that requires your faith to hold only if God reacts to your immediate need, like that kind of faith isn't robust enough to make it through this life. There will be long seasons potentially where God doesn't answer the prayer that you really want, but he still is, believe it or not, good. And that's what the Bible teaches. That there are people who die, even in this case, and I don't like to say that, even infants who die who God allows us to happen. And I can't answer why, but I just know it's there. But I also know what Job said is true. And he said this, <laughs> Even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Because what's the alternative? And this is the story of Moses, and the God behind Moses is the God who is faithful in the long term, faithful ultimately, always to be true to himself, to be a good and faithful, loving father. In every step of the way, who can be trusted. Now, next week, we're going to see what happens when Moses, the murderer (laughs) on the run, has an encounter with God and what God says to him. Be glad to have you back for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to raise up the story of Moses, to look at his life and see what you are doing even in our own lives, by looking at him. We thank you for preserving this uh, these texts for centuries, that we can look at them today and learn about history, and also learn about you through the pages of history. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you're a God who is faithful, ultimately, even if there are seasons of life where we don't receive the support and aid that we want in the moment. And that is a hard teaching, but it really seems to be true biblically. And so I pray that you would help us to mature our faith in that way and deepen our faith. That yes, while we pray for healing and support and help and you know, relief, that when that doesn't come, that you would remind us that you are a faithful God, even when we don't get the things that we would prefer to have. So Father, we thank you But you're with us every step of the way. But never once have you left us alone. And never once do you leave us on our own. But you are faithful. You see, you care, and you know. Help us to trust you again where we are missing that, where we struggle right now. Father, remind us of your faithfulness that you are always faithful ultimately. Give us courage to believe again. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.